Israel, a tiny and troubled land. Its narrowest point, just nine miles wide, and its 71 years of existence, tainted by expulsion, displacement, and occupation. Today, it is a country fraught with animosity, division, and dashed hopes of peace. What has never changed is the chaotic nature of Israeli politics. On September 17th, the country went to the polls for the second time in a year for an unprecedented repeat election in what has essentially served as a referendum on 69-year-old Likud leader Benjamin Netanyahu, the country's longest-serving prime minister. He is a leader mired in corruption troubles, one who has increasingly turned rightward as he clamours to save his political career and seal a record fifth term in office. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I am your host, Jack Moore, Deputy Foreign Editor at The National. This week, we are analysing the Israeli election, the second to be held this year, its impact on Israel's Arabs, the Palestinians, and ultimately asking the question, are we witnessing the fall of Israel's political titan, Benjamin Netanyahu? No single party has ever won a majority in the 120-seat Knesset, Israel's parliament, meaning that coalition building is the key to the formation of any Israeli government. Netanyahu dramatically failed to form such a coalition after April's election, which he called early because of the corruption cases, when longtime ally and former defence minister Avigdor Lieberman turned his back on him, refusing to hand him the majority he so craved. Instead of allowing main challenger Benny Gantz, the leader of the Blue and White Party and former head of the Israeli military, the chance to form a coalition, Netanyahu dissolved parliament, making himself a caretaker prime minister and ordering a rerun for September. The day after Tuesday's repeat vote, exit polls show the race is once again too close to call, with Netanyahu and Gantz both on 32 seats each, but with neither commanding enough clout to secure a majority coalition. Those who decide Israel's future now include the former ally who turned on Netanyahu and the bloc of Arab-majority parties that secured third place in the vote. The frenetic campaign, one lathered in xenophobia, scare tactics and desperation, has come to a close, but weeks of negotiations over a new government have only just begun. While it appears to have been a bad night for Netanyahu, it remains unclear if it was a disaster. But his situation remains precarious, and he looked downbeat in his end-of-the-night speech at his headquarters after the polls closed. Benny Gantz, meanwhile, struck a more positive note, saying that Netanyahu had failed to complete his mission. His Blue and White Party expressed cautious optimism that Israel would soon have new leadership. I spoke to Miriam Berger, a freelance journalist in Jerusalem, who is soon to be joining the Washington Post foreign desk in DC. She was at the Blue and White's headquarters after the polls closed. The mood was quite hesitant. <laughs> so last April, uh, the initial exit polls showed Blue and White doing uh, better than Likud. Gans came out and said, it's a victory, we've won. And then uh, Israeli initial exit polls are notoriously an unreliable, as most exit polls often are. Anyway, we, we know that the story played out differently than, than Blue and White having a clear-cut win. And so this year, uh, there was like a very concerted effort not to have that kind of thing happen again. The feeling in both camps, at least for now, is mixed. Just as it is for an electorate weary at facing its second election campaign in only five months. Some of Netanyahu's supporters have even lost confidence in him after a year of scandal, incitement and perceived weakness. Miriam spoke to one of them. 
And there are people who see this as a failure from Netanyahu, even if they still support him. So, you know, I last night as his speech was playing, I went out to buy some chocolate. And um, the 19-year-old kid who was working the little corner shop, this is like 3.30 in the morning in Tel Aviv, you know, I said, how are you feeling? And he said, you know, he was sad. He was a Netanyahu supporter. And he was like, you know, Netanyahu failed. And Netanyahu's uh, speech is playing on the TV in his little quarter shop as, you know, Netanyahu's saying, you know, we're going to continue on strong. And this 19-year-old who's who's largely not known any other leader besides Netanyahu and who told me, you know, for him, a left, he, the main thing was prevent a left government. You know, he's he's been raised in this rhetoric of the left and right that has, you know, been part and parcel to Netanyahu's rule. Uh, he's never really known anything else, and and he saw the election as uh, and, and last night's result as a failure for Netanyahu, despite still supporting him. Disappointment with Netanyahu was not only confined to metropolitan centres, but working class areas of Israel too. In uh, the city of Afula, which is like a working class city, uh, I spoke with the woman who supported Shas, which is uh, the party that you know is popular among. Mizrahi Jews and ultra-Orthodox Mizrahi Jews. It sort of spans a bit of a religious spectrum. She voted for Shas, but did so knowing that, that Shas would then support uh, Netanyahu. She wanted Netanyahu. She supports him. And yet she was also really annoyed about the election happening again and all the money that was wasted. Despite all of the negativity surrounding Netanyahu, can he survive? He has remained in power for 10 years, painted himself as Israel's defender, but the corruption charges have chipped away at his invincibility and his situation now appears severely weakened, if not dire. Both Lieberman and Gantz are calling for a unity government in which both the Likud and the Blue and White would sit, and it may be Gantz who takes the premiership in that coalition. It is becoming increasingly clear that he would have to pull a rabbit out of the hat to become Israel's next Prime Minister. I spoke to Hugh Lovat, Middle East and North Africa policy fellow, at the European Council on Foreign Relations about Netanyahu's hopes of survival and the politics at play after the vote. So certainly it was not the evening that Netanyahu would have wanted. Um, you know, he didn't, uh, Likud didn't finish first and the sort of um, right-wing coalition that he would have preferred to form uh, doesn't have a majority. But I don't think uh, in themselves the results are that much a surprise. I mean, it's broadly in line with polling. So in terms of where we go next, uh, as a general rule, one should never uh, bet against Netanyahu. I think those that love him and hate him all acknowledge that he is a, a master politician. Even though Netanyahu's back is against the wall, his supporters in public are defiant. So the spin you get from Likud aides and supporters and, and MKs is, we're still fighting, this isn't the end. Uh, you know, they call Netanyahu the magician because he's always able to pull a win out of, out of nothing. So there's definitely, um, there's the, the public uh, messaging that we're still with him, he's strong. Behind the scenes, you're, you know, there's uh, off the record people saying things about how, like, you know, it's time to get a new leader of Likud, whether that's actually going to happen, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely people who are very frustrated with him. Ever the political warrior, he refused to concede on Tuesday evening saying he would not allow a government with anti-Zionist parties in coalition. It was a pointed jab at Arab factions, and in particular, the jointless party led by Ayman Ode. Netanyahu also appeared to offer an olive branch to Gantz, and a signal that he would now be willing to sit in coalition with him. Gantz had previously pledged not to make a deal with Netanyahu if he was indicted on corruption charges. 
So when I heard that statement, I interpreted it slightly differently. Because really, up until now, he's been talking about forming a right-wing government. So his choice of words saying Zionist government, to me, that opens up more possibilities um, in terms of Likud potentially reaching out to other parties to their left. But also, uh, you're quite right in terms of you know how one interprets those comments within the broader context of, um, I would say, incitement against uh, the Arab community. The call for a unity government has been made by both Gantz and Lieberman. Lieberman has refused to enter into any other coalition government. His right-wing secular party was on course for nine seats, and he is now the potential kingmaker of the election. He holds staunchly anti-Palestinian positions and is a man who lives in a West Bank settlement and has called for Arabs in Israel who are opposed to the state to be beheaded. His involvement severely complicates negotiations for both parties. Uh, Lieberman is very unlikely to sit in any sort of coalition with Arab parties. So for Blue and White, I think this is added complexity. You either reach out to Lieberman or you reach out to Ayman Like I don't, I think it would be extremely difficult for them to enlist the support of both parties at this current time. Another scenario is that with all parties once again deadlocked and no majority found after weeks of negotiations, Netanyahu bids for a third election. Such a development would once again send Israel into uncharted waters, and the Israeli establishment would likely move to block any such attempt by Netanyahu. So I think it's, it's quite clear at this moment in time that neither the Israeli political establishment, regardless of which side of the aisle you're, you're currently on, nor the Israeli public has any appetite for fresh elections at this point. Um, you know, when you look at the results of yesterday's elections, and you compare them to the results from April's election. Uh, in terms of the, the number of seats that sort of both coalitions got, the, the centrist coalition and the right-wing coalition, they've already got the same amount of seats. So there's a real question, you know, how much would a third round of elections actually change? A primary concern for Netanyahu is the corruption cases that loom over him. He faces a pre-indictment hearing on October 2nd in three cases that his legal team have tried furiously to delay without success. This hearing will shift the focus back from the election and onto his legal woes, a shift that could come at the worst time for him. Ultimately, I think what really matters for Netanyahu beyond just power is, of course, how to avoid going to prison, to put it quite uh, bluntly. And I think you know, the extent to which he's able to form a coalition or be part of a coalition that can guarantee him some form of immunity, I think ultimately that will be one of the most important deciding factors. If there is some sort of unity government, you know, as I said before, I think the most likely thing would be some sort of power sharing. What other people have suggested, which I think is still a bit of an outside chance, but it still can't be discounted, uh, and perhaps it's actually the more elegant solution, is that there is some sort of uh, internal deal between blue and white in Likud, which guarantees Netanyahu immunity in exchange for him basically stepping down and um, walking off into the sunset. Now, knowing you know, knowing what we do about Netanyahu, I, that's not that easy to imagine, you know, him going away willingly. But given how important the, the stakes are in terms of his you know, personal life, um, you know, maybe you can imagine that as, a, as another sort of outside possibility. But even though Israel has strong anti-corruption laws, there does not appear to be the appetite across the country 
for him to drop out of Israeli politics because of his alleged misdeeds? Uh, overall, Israelis are not really concerned about the corruption cases. You know, I spoke to um, one family yesterday who was all the father was very angry about Netanyahu and all the corruption. He, you know, he had worked as a as a cleaner for many years, and he was like, you know, you can't steal. His daughter had basically nothing. His daughter, who was in her uh, late twenties, had basically nothing to say except "Rock Bibi, only Bibi," which is like one of the slogans. And she was just, you know, didn't care about the corruption, didn't care about anything. For her, it was Bibi, you know, security, keeping uh, safe. I think that kind of uh, exemplifies the spectrum. Where there is an appetite for the downfall of Netanyahu is within the Arab sector. Arab Palestinians make up around twenty percent of Israel's population but members of the community often complain of discrimination in areas such as health, housing and education. Poverty among Arab citizens is 47%, more than double the national average of 18%. Some members of the Arab-Israeli community did not see this election as offering them any choice. Nothing will change except more killings. Killing runs in Israel's blood. Killing the innocent, killing Palestinians, displacing them and seizing many Palestinian lands. This is Israel's concern in order to pull off a bill in the election. The election campaign put on a display of racism and discrimination from nationalist Israeli Jews towards Arabs. Such rhetoric has preceded previous election campaigns, but this time around it has been particularly pronounced. On this campaign trail, Netanyahu's Facebook page sent out a message saying that Arabs want to destroy us all, forcing the platform to ban his page's messaging function. He also tried to impose cameras in polling stations to film Arab voters, alleging voter fraud, a tactic viewed as a bid to intimidate those who will not vote for him. But the strategy ultimately backfired. I spoke to Tarek Bakoni, Ramallah-based Israel-Palestine analyst for the International Crisis Group, who shed light on the Arab turnout and what was at stake for Palestinians in Israel and Palestinians in the occupied territories during this election. The racist rhetoric that Netanyahu has employed against Palestinian citizens of Israel continues in, in this last campaign. The only the only major difference, I think, is that the, the Arab turnout in this campaign promised to have a significant impact on the outcome of the elections. And so I think Netanyahu was exceedingly worried. So I think there was a major drive by the Likud uh, campaign to try to intimidate Arab voters and to try to get Likud voters out. And one of the primary ways of doing that, of course, is by using racist rhetoric. So within the Palestinian community in Israel, there was a lot of skepticism about the election. Uh, In the current uh, campaign, however, uh, that was slightly different because the the Arab vote became an important uh, factor in shaping the outcome of the elections. It was clear in this time round that the Arab vote would actually have major implications. And so that increased both the, the voter turnout. We saw the voter turnout yesterday being quite high within the Palestinian community, but it also increased the, the fears and the nerves that the the Likud campaign had in the run-up to the election. After dividing itself in April's vote to little success, the Arab joint list now sits as the third biggest party in Israel, like it was after the election in March 2015. It's made up of four majority Arab parties that call for an end to Israel's controversial nation-state law passed last year that declares Israel to be the homeland of solely the Jewish people. 
It also calls for negotiations towards ending Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. Its leader, Ayman Oday, called in this election campaign for a 60% Arab turnout to successfully oust Netanyahu. On Wednesday, he tweeted at Netanyahu, telling him his incitement had come back to bite him because of the increased Arab turnout. There is also a hope in the community of toppling Netanyahu, a man seen as a chief inciter against Arabs. Netanyahu's tweet was a clear payback for Netanyahu. He was directly speaking to Netanyahu as Abu Yair and showing that all the intimidation tactics that the Likud campaign had used against the Arab community from the racist rhetoric all the way through to the, the attempt to push legislation whereby voters could use cameras in in booths, in, in voting booths, had failed. The Arab turnout was quite high and now the, the joint list is the third biggest party in the Knesset. Now, they do have uh, political capital. How they will use it is still unclear. Now, this Arab coalition appears poised to emerge as the main opposition bloc following Tuesday's election, a historic first that would grant a new platform to a long marginalised minority. The party is projected to win about 12 seats, placing a representative of Israel's Arab citizens closer to the centre of power than ever before and strengthening their ability to influence the national agenda. No major political party, whether it's Likud or Blue and White, will ever form a coalition with the joint list or with any Palestinian political party. But I think that the political power they have is as opposition. I think it's very clear that blue and white is unlikely to enter into a coalition with, with the joint list. And I think this is what this is a very important question because it shows the glass ceiling for Palestinian participation in the Israeli elections. Whatever the result for Israel's Arabs in this election, the fact remains that more than 4 million Palestinians who either could not vote or who chose not to vote will be subject to Israeli control and the government's policies. According to us, the elections don't mean anything to the Palestinian people. Why? Because all the existing parties are extremists. They all have a common base, who is more racist than the other and is against the Palestinians. They all pull it off. The smart one says, I will annex lands. The smart one says, I will annex Jordan's valley. I will do this and that. Israel's military continues to occupy East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And both candidates have pledged to annex the Jordan Valley, a move roundly condemned by the international community. Gantz, as the head of the Israeli military, presided over two wars in Gaza and even bragged on the campaign trail for April's election about how many Palestinians were killed in those offensives and that he had bombed Gaza into the Stone Age in the 2014 war. As Israel's political elite gradually continues its move to the hard right, the issue of the occupation was completely off the table during this election. So is it even possible that Palestinians would prefer either candidate? For some, a vote between Netanyahu and Gantz is essentially a vote for the same person. For other Palestinians, they want the anti-Palestinian policies of the Israeli government to be front and centre in the eyes of the world. And the candidate who presents that is Netanyahu. On Gaza, Gantz is the candidate most likely to drag Israel into a new operation in the coastal enclave if he secures victory. He has chided Netanyahu for not acting more forcefully there against Hamas and other factions. 
While this may be electioneering, Gantz has experience of operating in Gaza, and with two other generals promised top positions in his cabinet, he may be more inclined to act there, where Netanyahu has been hesitant to break the status quo. Gantz is the person who was the chief architect of 2014 on Gaza. So it might have happened under Netanyahu, the, the military assault on the Gaza Strip in 2014, that, that ended up in the deaths of or the killing of more than 2,000 Palestinians, including 500 children. So it's not like we're looking at sort of the, the removal of an Israeli leader who has been uh, racist and lethal towards Palestinians and we're being faced with someone who is uh, a more palatable figure. Gantz is extremely problematic for Palestinians and is not someone who will be celebrated. Now, is there is there a glee that... that um, Netanyahu is, is getting his comeuppance, of course, and, and uh, including the fact that he's up for corruption charges, the, the election results suggest that he might not be able to get the immunity he's been seeking. Uh, there is the sense that he's got what has been coming to him. But at the same time, if I'm honest, a lot of Palestinians here uh, wanted a Netanyahu victory because a Netanyahu victory presents the reality of Israeli racism and Israeli annexation and colonization to the world. Someone like Gantz would get members of the international community thinking that they're dealing with a moderate leader, uh, a leader who is in practice doing everything that Likud would be doing anyway, but under a more moderate uh, uh, umbrella or under a more moderate visage. What happens from here, both to the Israeli government and Benjamin Netanyahu himself, remains unclear. Israeli politics are complex, and backdoor negotiations will have already started in earnest. It's all about the numbers, and it could take weeks or months for the country to have a fully functioning coalition with the seats required to govern. Even the most dedicated of observers are unsure where the country is heading. I mean, I think certainly we're entering the final chapter, but one should never bet against Netanyahu, and he still has a number of cards to play. Um, and the fact that he's now fighting not just for his political life, but his um, you know, personal life, I think that will make him fight even harder and longer. But perhaps this is now about how to choreograph Netanyahu's eventual exit from the political scene. You know, is it done in a way that he's basically dragged, kicking and screaming um, away from the premiership and potentially dragged into a into an Israeli uh, jail? Or is there some sort of arrangement that can be hammered out that would allow him to avoid prison, perhaps serve a limited number of years, but then gradually and uh, in a face-saving manner actually uh, withdraw from the political scene? What is for sure is that Benjamin Netanyahu's political career and his status as Israel's ultimate survivor hangs in the balance. Thank you to my guests, Miriam Berger, Hugh Lovat, and Tarek Bakoni. This is Beyond the Headlines. Subscribe to the program by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app. Follow more of our coverage on our website at thenational.ae. We were produced this week by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. I've been your host, Jack Moore. Thank you for listening.